Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1030. And as always, we will begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider the text. Let's bow together. Our Lord, we thank you for a beautiful Sunday in which to gather. Lord, we thank you for our church family. Thank you for each who is here today. Lord, I pray your richest blessings on each one of them. And Lord, help us all especially in these moments as we look at a portion of your word, as we try to gain understanding of its contents, and then as we see how we can apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would use this day to increase our spiritual wisdom, that you would give us greater zeal for your cause. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so we've had some pretty amazing weather this fall, 70 degree temps, lots of sun. Uh, Looking out the windows today, I think that has come to an end, though. And if you haven't already, you're probably soon going to have to grab the winter coats Bundle up with hats, gloves, scarves, and all of that. And that's okay. We do live in Michigan, after all, and it's approaching December, and this is what life is like this time of year in this state. And my kids love winter, so it will be no problem for them. One of my kids' favorite things to do in the wintertime is go outside, make their snowmen, uh, play um, to their heart's content, but then they come inside and they want us to make them a nice steaming cup of hot chocolate. Okay? Every time they go out to play, they're going to come back in and ask for the hot chocolate. And my wife and I love hot chocolate too. Sometimes after the kids have gone to bed, my wife and I will sneak back into the kitchen, we'll heat up some water, and we'll make ourselves some hot chocolate as well. Of course, in the summertime, it's just the opposite. In the summertime, we want a nice cold glass of ice water, maybe better, some nice iced lemonade. But you know what nobody ever craves? That is room temperature drinks. Nobody likes a room temperature drink. Nobody has ever come in after a hot day out doing yard work and said, you know what I would really like right now? A nice, lukewarm glass of soda. That would be fantastic. Nobody ever woke up in the morning and as they're getting ready for work, thought to themselves, you know what would really get me started today? A nice, lukewarm cup of coffee. That would just hit the spot. Nobody thinks that way. Hot drinks are good. Cold drinks are good, lukewarm drinks are disgusting. I remember one time late at night, my wife was already in bed, I was outside reading a book or, you know, out in the living room reading a book or something, and my wife calls to me and she says, I need some water. So I went into the kitchen and I found on the counter a a half-drunk glass of water. So I brought it into her, gave her the glass of water. She took one sip and went right in my face. I don't think she knew she did it in my face because, like I said, it was after dark. It, you know, she couldn't see anything in there, I hope. But it hit me in the face. And I said, after, as I wiped it off my face, I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and she says, 
it's warm. <laughs> Nobody likes room temperature drinks. Well, in today's passage, we're going to learn that Christ does not like a lukewarm church. Christ does not like a lukewarm church. Now, just by way of reminder, we are working our way through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. And here in the opening chapters, we have letters from Christ to seven local churches. But the lessons learned uh, in each of these letters are applicable to all local churches at all times. And today we're in the seventh and final letter. It is the letter to the church in Laodicea. And Christ is not pleased with this church. And he says the reason is because this church is lukewarm. Today's passage helps us to understand what it means to be a lukewarm church. It also provides some remedies to lukewarmness. And then the passage concludes, as they all do, with some words of encouragement designed to spur our obedience to the Lord's words. But first, as always, Christ establishes for us his right to have his words heeded. Let's look at verse 14 together. The letter begins to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, quote, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Okay, so as he always does in these letters, Christ begins with a series of self-affirmations. Here we find three of them. First, he calls himself the Amen. Okay, this word speaks to that which is fixed, true, or unchangeable. And as Christ applies this word to himself, he means to teach that he is truth personified. Christ is the fixed, unchangeable source of all reality. And then he calls himself the faithful and true witness. So as truth personified, everything that Christ speaks is going to be true. Christ is reliable. His words can be trusted. And then thirdly, he calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Now, the word beginning here translates the Greek term arche. That term is better translated as ruler. He is ruler of the creation. In fact, back in chapter 1, verse 5 of this book, that's exactly how it was rendered. So I'm not sure why the translators decided to change it here in chapter 3. Christ is calling himself the ruler of creation here. And so, why does Christ have the right to be heard by the church? Well, it's because he is truth personified, because all that he speaks is truthful, and it's because he is the Lord of all things. That means he is also the Lord of the church, and the church ought to listen to the words of its Lord. Now, what does our Lord have to say to the church of Laodicea? Well, we find his words to this church in verse 15. He says to them first, I know your works. He is Lord. He is all-knowing. He knows what's going on in the church of Laodicea. Now, here's his assessment of their works. He says, you are neither hot, or excuse me, you are neither cold nor hot. Neither cold nor hot. And then in verse 16, he says, rather, you are lukewarm. Now, remember, friends, a hot beverage is good, and a cold beverage is good, but a lukewarm beverage is not good. The problem with it is that it has no use. 
A lukewarm beverage cannot warm you up. It cannot cool you down. It cannot satisfy you in any meaningful way. It is just there. And that's what a lukewarm church is like as well. A lukewarm church is a church with no spiritual usefulness. There's nothing distinctive about it. It is room temperature. It's exactly like the society around it. Whatever the temperature of society is, so to speak, that's the temperature of the church. A lukewarm church is a church that believes everything the society believes, teaches all that society teaches, values what society values, nothing distinctively Christian about it. And so Christ expresses his exasperation uh, over this church, verse 15. He says, would that you were either cold or hot. He says, look, if you were hot, it'd be good. If you were cold, it'd be good. But you're neither. You, you're lukewarm. I wish that you were anything but what you are. Completely exasperated by this church. And then in verse 16, he expresses his disposition toward the church even further. He says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a really vivid way for Christ to say a lukewarm church makes me sick to my stomach. And all I want to do with a lukewarm church is just get it out of here. Just spit it out of my mouth. Christ has no tolerance for a lukewarm church. Friends, how did the church of Laodicea get into this lukewarm state? Well, Christ gives us the answer in verse 17. He's quoting the church here. He writes, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. It would help if we understood something about the city of Laodicea at this point. We should understand that Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city. It was the center of a big trade network that connected it to other cities like Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, and also to major bodies of water like the Mediterranean Sea. The city of Laodicea was also a major hub of textile production and of banking. Okay, the famous philosopher Cicero did his banking in Laodicea. Modern excavations of the ancient city have also uncovered two theaters, a sports stadium, a public fountain, a major aqueduct, and even a medical center. Aristotle wrote about the salve produced in this medical center, which could apparently heal weak eyes. Um, another philosopher named Galen spoke of an ointment that this center produced to help with your hearing. So it was a very prominent city, lots of production, lots of, of, of services offered, an extremely wealthy city. In fact, it was so wealthy that it even declined an offer of financial aid from the Emperor Nero when the city experienced an earthquake in A.D. 60. Okay, can you imagine a city being so wealthy that it would turn down an offer of free money to rebuild? They said, nope, we've got it covered. All right, we've got all the money we need. Extremely wealthy city. Friends, the church of Laodicea was also extremely wealthy. Again, verse 17, the church would say, I am rich. I am prosperous, therefore I need nothing. 
Church of Laodicea was the kind of church that was full of successful manufacturers and retailers. It had the kind of church members who, could, who would go on long business trips. They'd take their vacations on yachts, things like this. Extremely wealthy congregation. This church was so wealthy that by the 4th century A.D., it had its own stone church building, which covered an entire city block. And this church building had pillars that rose up into the sky. It had marble floors. It had colorful mosaics on all of its walls. Okay, when I say the church of Laodicea was a wealthy church, I am not kidding. They were filthy rich. But friends, this church's wealth had become its downfall as material prosperity led them into spiritual complacency. Again, look at verse 17. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, therefore I need nothing. This church was completely self-satisfied, which was exactly the opposite of what the church needed to be. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ explains what his true disciples are like? He says his disciples are like this. They are poor in spirit. They mourn. They are meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, this is what Christ's true disciples are like. But that's not what the congregation in Laodicea was like. They were totally self-satisfied. We are rich. We are prosperous. We need nothing. They thought that because they had all the money in the world, they had no spiritual needs either. But Christ tells them their spiritual needs were actually very great. Look at the second part of verse 17. He says to the church, you say these things about yourselves, not realizing that you are actually wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Look, you think that your, your material wealth has eliminated all of your spiritual needs, but I say to you that you are spiritually bankrupt. Now, friends, how could this congregation have become so self-deceived? Well, sometimes material wealth can make us blind to our spiritual bankruptcy. See, here's how it can happen. You work hard, make lots of money, accumulate lots of possessions, and and achieve a fair amount of status. Then you start looking at all your worldly attainments, and, and you start thinking to yourself, you know, I'm a pretty impressive person. I've worked hard. Look at all that I've achieved. I'm pretty good. This train of thought can be reinforced by those around you, because with wealth comes influence, And with influence comes a lot of yes-men. And so you end up encountering all these people who say, Wow, look at all that you've got. You've got such amazing possessions. How did you achieve all that status? Teach me how you achieved all of this. Help me to be like you. And between what's going on internally and then what's coming at you externally, all of this can turn you into a self-righteous kind of person. You can reach the point where you think that you are a superior person because you possess superior wealth. And the flip side, you can look down on others 
who are impoverished and say, look, they are not rich like me because they are not as wise as me. They've not made good choices like me. They are not as good or as righteous as me. And then, friends, a sense of entitlement can set in. You can begin to think to yourself, you know, it was really hard work to accumulate all of this stuff. I deserve to just sit back and enjoy it now. And so, that's what you do. You you enjoy all of your material possessions and you become indifferent to matters of the soul. Friends, this is how we get lukewarm. This is how we can grow self-deceived. And it's all such a terrible tragedy. Well, what can the lukewarm church do? As we look at verses 18 and 19, Christ provides a threefold remedy to the lukewarm church. First, he says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So here's the first remedy. Okay, this church was extremely wealthy. Their lives were spent buying up all the latest stuff that their city had to offer. Christ's counsel to them is stop going out into the marketplace and acquiring stuff. Instead, turn to me by my riches. And what are the riches of Christ? They are the riches of his grace, mercy, wisdom, the riches of his words. He says, stop chasing after the material, start chasing after me and acquiring the spiritual. This accords well with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. And then he says this, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So stop desiring worldly wealth. Instead, desire and acquire the spiritual riches that can only be found through Christ. That's the first remedy to a lukewarm church. Second is found also in verse 18. Secondly, he says, I counsel you to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Remember, the city of Laodicea was well known for its textile industry. Church of Laodicea was busy buying all of the latest fashions and trends in their city. Christ says, stop chasing after those textiles Instead, pursue the white garments that I can provide you. What are these white garments? Well, in the book of Revelation, white garments are symbolic of righteousness and holiness. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. How would they do this? Well, the church would do it by repentance and faith. Many of the members of this church were probably not even born again. They were Christian in name only, as evidenced by the fact that their values were indistinguishable from the values of the surrounding world. So the first thing they needed was repentance toward their sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What they needed was the imputed righteousness of Christ. They needed that white garment of Christ's 
alien righteousness given to them the moment that they believed. So that God would no longer look at them in their sins, but he would look at them through the lens of his son Jesus. But then, friends, it would have to continue as they sought spiritual growth and sought to put into practice the righteousness which God desires from all of his people. This was a church that needed to stop buying junk And it needed to start buying up the spiritual riches of Christ. It's a church that needed to stop chasing after the latest fashions and needed to start pursuing Christ and His righteousness. And then thirdly, also in verse 18, we find a third counsel. He says, And buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Remember, there was this great medical center in Laodicea with its famous salve to anoint the physical eyes. Jesus says, you need to come to me for salve for your spiritual eyes. This is talking about the church's need for true spiritual discernment. They needed to start learning how to distinguish between the wisdom of Christ and the wisdom of the world and godly values and worldly values. They needed to learn to see Christ and themselves for who they truly were, not for how they falsely perceived them to be. So Christ says, come to me, come to me, have my wisdom, have my righteousness, have my spiritual discernment. The point here is that spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. Houses, cars, clothing, money, none of these things can help your spiritual dilemma. The only thing that can help that is Christ. Receiving his person, his work, and his words. That is the only thing that can help you. And so as Christ looks at this lukewarm church. He says, turn away from all of these worldly pursuits. Come after me. Seek me, my kingdom, my righteousness. Then you look at verse 19, this heartfelt plea. Christ says to the church, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Look, I love you, church. I love you. And I want what is in your best interest. And what you need is me. And what I have to offer. So repent. Turn from the way you've been going. Turn toward me and what I offer. Verses 20 to 21, Christ holds out precious promises for the church that will heed his words. Look at the first promise, verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, friends, this is often misunderstood by Christian readers. Often we read these words and we we interpret it to mean that the Lord Jesus is knocking on the heart of the unbeliever, begging for entrance into his heart. And that if the unbeliever will simply welcome Jesus in, he can be personally saved. But that's not what this text is talking about. In fact, if it was what it was talking about, it would be contradicting everything the New Testament scriptures have to say about Jesus and salvation and how it all works. So rather, friends, this image of of Christ knocking on the door, it's an image meant to convey the nearness of Christ's return. 
It's the nearness of Christ's return. Remember, the whole theme of the book of Revelation is that Christ is coming back. He's coming in power and in glory. And that's what this imagery is meant to convey. It's similar to Matthew 24, verse 33, which says this. When you see all these things, talking about things at the, uh, the end of time, when you see all these things, you will know that Christ is near at the very gates. And it's similar to what James writes in James 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So as Jesus looks at the church of Laodicea and he offers them counsel, he says, listen, I have squared myself to the door. I am knocking on that door. Any moment now, I'm going to gain entrance. That means, listen, I could return at any moment And those who rejoice when he enters will find his coming a welcome occasion. That's what Jesus means here. And he says they will even share a meal with him. Perhaps a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that that great feast which Christ will enjoy with his people at the dawning of the new age. It's a precious promise, Christ says to the church, that will come to its senses and repent, and trust in Christ, and not chase after wealth anymore, but chase after Him. For that kind of a people, for that kind of a church, Christ is saying, when I finally do throw open that door, and I return, I will find a people that I want to fellowship with. I'll find a people that I want to enjoy the marriage supper with. It's a promise of everlasting fellowship with Him. This is what Christ gives to the church that is hot toward spiritual things. And then a second promise, verse 21, He says, And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. So He continues the theme of His return. When I return, when I find the revitalized church, I will enjoy fellowship, we'll have a meal together. And then he says, and we will reign together in my kingdom. I will be on my throne and my church will be on that throne reigning with me. My friends, let there be no doubt our Lord Jesus is coming back. And when he returns, it will not be in quiet humility like at his first coming. No, he is coming in power and glory. His return will be visible, it will be powerful, and it will mean that his kingdom has finally come. And our Lord will take his throne on this earth. He will rule the nations and his holy church will be at his side. It will be there with him from that point and forever, enjoying his fellowship, delighting in his rule. So now we come to verse 22, which says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, this letter was first written to the church of Laodicea, but it is a letter meant for all churches in all ages. Whoever hears the Spirit Speak through these words. Let him listen. Let him heed the words. You know, friends, of all the churches addressed in the book of Revelation, 
I think that Grace Baptist Church is most at risk of becoming like the church in Laodicea. And here's why I would say that. It's because this church is so rich. We are so rich. Even now, as we are stuck in this economic malaise in our country, we are still among the richest people in the history of the world. I mean, do you know why our borders are flooded every day with people trying to come in? It's because they want the riches of this country. They want what we possess. We're an incredibly wealthy people. Such a wealthy church. But friends, there's a risk here that in all of our physical wealth, we will become spiritually self-satisfied. Thinking that because we are wealthy, we must necessarily be wise. That we must be righteous. We must be good people. That because we are wealthy, we must have the favor of God upon us. See, there is a risk that we can become lukewarm as a church because of our great wealth. In fact, friends, I think this has already happened to much of the American church. How can it be that 63% of American adults would say, I am a Christian, and yet our nation would be in the state that it is in today? How could such a thing be possible if the American church was not a Laodicean church? Absolutely rich physically but spiritually lukewarm, nothing distinctive about us at all, blending in exactly like the non-believers around us. The church in America has had absolutely no distinguishable impact in this culture for a hundred years running now. The American church is the Laodicean church. which means the American church is at risk of Christ spewing it from its mouth. So what can we do? My friends, to the extent that we might be guilty of this, we must repent, and we must resolve to chase after the riches of Christ and not after the riches of this world. If the Lord should bless us with wealth, We will thank him for it. We will use it as he would have us to use it, but we shall not make that our life's preoccupation. We shall seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We shall get into his word and we shall stay there. We shall not look at our material wealth and see it as a testament to our own virtue. Rather, if the Lord should give us wealth, we will see it as a gracious gift of God given that we might have the joy of being like him. See, God is the God of all riches, and God is a God who gives. He gave chiefly through His own Son, giving us the thing most precious to Himself that we might have life with Him. He is a God of riches. He's a God who gives. And friends, when God gives us material riches, He does it so that we can have the joy of being like Him, so that we can give for the good of others so that we can further His cause. Friends, this is why God would give us wealth. And so let us not be Laodicean Christians. Let us not be a Laodicean church. 
Let us be a church that is distinctive, that is passionate about the things of Christ, that is seeking His kingdom first of all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the the warning that it offers us. Lord, we see how vulnerable we are to becoming a Laodicean church. We are so wealthy by the world's standards, by historical standards. We could become spiritually complacent as we enjoy our prosperity. Lord, let that never happen to us. Help us to rely upon your word. Help us to chase after your son. And Lord, if you should bless us materially in the process, Lord, help us to become like you, to become givers. Help us to give that wealth away for your cause, for the good of others, so that the world would know where our true values lie, so that we might have the joy of being like you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.